2: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Michaela Massimi, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. Her new book, Perspectival Realism, is just out from Oxford University Press. For many philosophers, the fact that scientists take different perspectives on the world is an obstacle to being a realist about the world. In Perspectival Realism, Massimi argues that, to the contrary, the plurality of perspectives is the driving force behind realism. On her view, the scientific realism that emerges out of the perspectival nature of scientific representation takes perspectival models as inferential blueprints for exploring what is possible. The realist's primitives are not essential properties, but the stable law-like dependencies that are identified again and again from different perspectives. Massimi also shows how scientific communities develop what she calls natural kinds with a human face, which are evolving groupings of modally robust phenomena that result from the historically and culturally situated systems of scientific practices. Massimi's book constructs a new vision of what realism can be that will be highly influential for years to come. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Michaela Massimi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello, Kari. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, this is the more, one of the most interesting books, defenses and uh, explanations and elaborations of realism that, that I've come across in recent years, which... You know, comes from as the title says, um, integrating the whole idea of different perspectives in science. Um, so it's I, I'm quite sure it's going to be very influential in in years coming forward. Um, so before we get into the the nitty gritty of the book itself, maybe you can say a bit about uh, yourself as you as a philosopher. You came to to philosophy, and then uh, the genesis of this book.
0: Thank you very much, Carrie, for the really kind introduction. Um, I discovered philosophy when I was in secondary school. I was lucky enough to grow up in a country like Italy, where uh, philosophy is uh, taught in secondary school, uh, state schools. And I was mesmerized by the subject at a very young age. Um, But I've always been also interested in science. So I remember as a teenager, I would read uh, uh, popular science books about physics, for example. So when I had to choose at the age of 18 what I wanted to study at university, it was a really tough choice because uh, there was a part of me that was really interested in science. Uh, but um, I think my love for philosophy um, prevailed in the end. Uh, so that's, uh, that's how I ended up um, studying philosophy at university. Um, The story behind this particular book has been kind of long. (laughs) It's been a long book in the making and uh, um, really started maybe 17 years ago or something. Um, I've always been interested in debates about realism and anti-realism in science, really since I was a postgraduate student. And um, in a way, my interest in realism has always got entangled with my interest in uh, um Kant philosophy of nature and Kantianism and philosophy of science in general. Um, and so it was really when uh, Ron Giri's book came out in 2006 called Scientific Perspectivism that in a way I saw in uh, the position that Giri was developing in the in the book um, a possible way of answering some of the general questions I had about realism. Um, and in a way, developing the project that Ron Geary um, started in that book. I mean, Scientific Perspectivism, Ron Geary's book was not intended to be a book about realism. It was really a book about the role the perspectives play in um, experimentation and theorising. Uh, but towards the end of the book, he discusses how this might have an impact on our way of thinking about realism and this is where the book ends so in a way i wanted to continue the project that um rongiri had uh, had started and that's that's how basically this book um, took a life of its own and really going back to my kantian interest and uh, um, there's a broadly kantian question behind the book which is how is knowledge of nature possible and that really shapes the the two main question behind the book so how do we form a reliable knowledge of nature um, from a point of view that is always situated and perspectival. And that's the question in part one of the book. And the second question is, uh, how does the world look like um, as a result of this process, which is the second part of the book?
2: Right. So, right. It's it's very, very, very well logically kind of oriented into those two parts, the perspectival part, and then the, the realism part. And, you know, and so you give this, you know, perspectival story of how, as you put it, we justifiably infer or, or form our realist commitments. Um, So, maybe we could start with you know part one you know the perspectival bit you um so one of the important moves i think you make in the very beginning is to uh distinguish two basic senses of perspectival um could you could you say a bit about those two different senses and the one that you know matters for for scientific realism sure so um Obviously, the very word
0: perspectival immediately brings to mind the metaphors from the history of art and the role of perspective and perspectival drawing um, and the impact that the use of perspective had on um, not only the history of art, but also the history of cartography, the history of architecture, the history of urban planning. So one thing I would say straight at the outset is that and I really want to dispel a possible um, um, misunderstanding that the user perspective may have in this context. Um, it's not meant to suggest in any way the idea of the agent as a spectator of nature. Uh, the idea of a perspective has been absolutely pivotal in shaping uh, the way we think about, as I said, cartography, architecture, urban, urban planning we use perspective and perspectival drawing because otherwise we won't be able to build buildings, bridges and design um, entire areas of our urban planning and so forth. So the metaphor of the perspective is, is key for the things that we do and we build and we construct and not just for the um, kind of classical metaphor of the agent as a spectator. And this is something that I developed throughout the book, especially um, kind of halfway through in chapter five, where I discuss the analogy with architectural blueprint. But going back to the very basic idea of a perspectival drawing, if you think of uh, um, a perspectival drawing, really any example that comes to mind in the book, I discuss the an um, Arnolfini portrait by Jan van Eyck uh, as one example of perspectival drawing and I compare it with Las Meninas from, uh, um, uh, by Diego Velázquez. What is interesting is that the first thing that comes to mind uh, about a perspectival representation is that it is a representation from a specific vantage point Uh, So the perspectivity of the representation is usually understood as the expression of the situated vantage point from which the scene is represented or is painted. But there is another sense of um, perspectivity that is equally very important. A representation is perspectival because it has one or more vantage points um, towards which the lines are drawn and it is the use of those vanishing points um, that allows the representation to appear as if it was from a specific vantage point. Um, so obviously those two notions of perspectival, what I call perspectival one from a specific vantage point, and perspectival two, namely directed towards one or more vanishing points, are really Two sides of the same coin. Uh, So a representation is perspectival one only because it's perspectival two. It's only in virtue of there being a vanishing point towards which the lines are drawn that we can have a representation that looks like it has been drawn from a specific vantage point. But in philosophical discourse, we tend to blur the distinction between these two senses of being perspectival. And so very often what you find is that people talk um, about the perspectival nature of the representation or the perspectival nature of knowledge without really um, having in mind the second notion of perspectivity, which is really the one that matters for my realist project, namely that um, uh, we encounter reality, we, we open windows on reality via this process of projecting towards a vanishing point. So the whole project of the book is really an attempt to describe how is it possible for human beings like us, wonderfully diverse, through a true plurality of historical and culturally situated perspectives, um, to encounter reality and open up windows on reality in, in in this way. So I'm using the metaphor from the art historian Erwin Panofsky. There's a beautiful um, essay that describes the history of uh, perspective in art, where he says, the importance of perspective and the use of machines like perspectographs uh, in the Renaissance allowed to transform two-dimensional canvas and contingent aggregates of objects into something that looks like a window of reality. So I use this metaphor opening up windows of reality as a way of saying that through our scientific practices and modeling techniques, we're able to um, always from a situated vantage point, opening up windows of reality, and that's the only way through which we encounter the world as being populated with the phenomena that that we do believe uh, um, are real so that's that's the part of uh, uh, the book at the beginning where I set out these two notion of perspectival one perspectival two and I in, in really in the bulk of the book I explored the second notion so this idea of directionality of the representation the opening up a window of reality But I go back to the first notion, which is a sort of more common and the one that immediately comes to mind at the end in the final chapter 11, where I go back to the idea of the situatedness of knowledge and explore more different ways of thinking about what makes scientific knowledge situated.
2: Right, good, good. Um, Yeah, because one of the, you know, outside of this context, you know, and, and typically not in discussions uh, you know, in, in more, well, in, in other fields, um, the whole idea of perspective is wound up with the idea of being subjective as opposed to objective. And, uh, um, and so the, there's a, there's a very quick, um, you know, fallacious argument, but it's, it's very, very popular, um, where, you know, because we have these perspectives, uh, you know, subjective perspectives. Therefore, you know, any sort of theory or any sort of, you know, outcome we have is itself going to be subjective. Um, you don't really get into that that issue that issue much, right? Um, um, but it would be helpful at some point. You know, if you say, you know, how the vantage point sort of, you know, metaphor, um corresponds or, or how that's related to this subjectivity aspect of perspective
0: yeah so that's a very good point right because um, as soon as one talks about perspective the first thing that comes to mind is um, the, the perspective understood as a subject on a system of belief or a point of view kind of colloquially speaking but that's not the way I use the, the, the term perspective and scientific perspective to start with. So that's an important distinction. So there's a big literature about points of view and um, exactly point the point of view of the observer and so forth. But when it comes to science and scientific perspectivism, which is the tradition that I've been following, what we really mean by perspective is the um, what I mean by perspective, my own definition building up from uh, um Gary's own view, which was um, rooted in the semantic view of theories. So for him, a perspective was a family of models. So he talked about the Newtonian perspective or the Maxwellian perspective and so forth. Um, the way I speak about scientific perspective is as a um, historical and culturally situated practice of a particular community at a particular time. And by that, what I mean is essentially uh, three main things. So there is the body of claims of knowledge that the community put forward. Um, Then there is um, the mix of theoretical, experimental, technological resources available to that community uh, to reliably make those claims of knowledge. And thirdly, uh, there are epistemic methodological principles that the community uses to justify the reliability of the claims advanced. So um, when we talk about scientific perspective in this context, we are really, uh, first of all, talking about communities rather than individual agents. And we are talking about historically and culturally situated systems of practices um, broadly understood to include, uh, as I said, theoretical but also experimental Uh, uh, resources available to their community to advance those claims of knowledge. Um, The question remains, because people may ask, well, if our knowledge is always situated, is always perspectival in this historical cultural sense, how is it possible for those communities to come to know the world as is? How is it possible to, to be realist about science? And that has been really the key question behind the book. That's why I started writing this book, that's why I got interested in the old topic, because it seemed to me that really we are so accustomed to the idea of uh, scientific realism as a sort of view from nowhere, God's eye view, um, where we, we have been uh, trained to think about the best theories in mature science and how they are approximately true. Uh, what they tell us a true story about what there is, that we tend to forget that actually scientific knowledge is always situated, always perspectival. We never have that view from nowhere. We have a view that is uh, beautifully situated uh, uh, because there are wonderfully diverse communities that have over time developed tools and techniques and instruments to Harvest data, to make inferences from the data to the phenomena, to join the dots between the phenomena to the natural kinds. And through that technique, they have opened up windows of reality. It is through that method that we encounter nature as being populated by modally robust phenomena. So, effectively, my book is a project in the epistemology of science, it is a way of better understanding how we develop those techniques and tools, those situated practices so that we can encounter in, the, in, in a ro- robust, reliable and justifiable way nature as being uh, thus and so. Um, and so there is no subjectivity because in a way, um, if you like, the only subjectivity is the subjectivity of uh, uh, historically culturally situated communities. But the, the beauty of it is that the reliability of science, so this incredible epistemic feat that we call science, It's not in spite of this plurality of perspective, but it's thanks to this plurality of perspective. So what I really wanted to show in the book is that this pluralism of perspective is not an obstacle, it's not a hurdle to the question about realism, but it's actually the driving engine of realism. Uh, As soon as uh, one relocates questions of realism from uh, um, a sort of God's eye view to historically situated communities i think different kinds of realism becomes available and obviously spelling out what kind of realism will become available became the project of the book um, but yeah so that that's in answer to your question about why there is no <laughs> no risk about the subjectivity as such
2: yeah no that's very helpful um which it kind of leads to um to the the sort of the the usual perspective <laughs> Um, no pun intended, is um, what you call the problem of inconsistent models. So a lot of, you know, just, a, you know, a quite opposite from what you just said. Typically, the idea of, of a pluralistic view or, or different perspectives, you know, partial you know, models that capture parts and, um, is, is seen as a problem. Um, and, and you call it the problem of inconsistent models. Could you say maybe a bit about what that more, much more usual, um, uh, response is to different models and, um, how, how, how your view, you know, differs from that?
0: Sure. Um, So, yeah, the problem of inconsistent model is exactly the expression of this tension that I was describing earlier, namely, um, it's usually presented as a challenge to anyone who wants to defend a kind of realism about science. And the starting point is the uh, plurality of scientific models in some areas of inquiry. So the argument would go along the following line. Um, Critics would say, uh, if... The purpose of scientific models is to represent um, specific portions of reality, specific target systems. Um, Once you realize that there are areas where there's a plurality of models for the same target system, uh, it becomes quickly clear that we can't really um, have realism or what we can't have is um, uh, a, a take on those models as providing us with special access to reality. So the option seems to be either to be an instrumentalist about models, and so take the model pluralism as just instantiation of different tools to make calculations, get things done, but not really representation of the world. Uh, or uh, to uh, take the model pluralism seriously, but at the cost, really, of uh, um, giving up on realism uh, um, altogether. And some of the um, perspectivalist answers to that kind of uh, objection, I'm thinking of Alex Ruger, for example, um, have gone along the lines of uh, uh, representational properties. So Alex Ruger has this really interesting argument um, that he put forward uh, a few years ago where he said, think of those models as effectively ascribing relational properties to the same target system. So the classical example that people have been developing in the literature goes back to um, uh, Margaret Morrison, and she discusses different models for the nucleus. So nuclear physics, if we want to study atomic nucleus, we can use the liquid drop model uh, that describes the atomic nucleus as a drop of incompressible nuclear fluid, or we can use the shell model that describe the nucleus as a series of shells where protons and neutrons sit in uh, magic numbers. Or we can use the quark models that describe the nucleus as a bunch of quarks that exchange gluons and so forth. And so the problem with consistent model is, but what is really the nucleus? If I want to be a realist about the nucleus, and I get all these different models that tell me something apparently incompatible or inconsistent about what the nucleus is, How can I ever defend realism about the nucleus? So a possible reply is, well, think of those models as ascribing relational properties, really, so um, rather than intrinsic monadic properties to the nucleus. Um, but critics have been unimpressed. So people like Margaret Morrison, but also Anjan Chakravarty in his uh, 2017 book on scientific ontology, they have chapters where they describe how perspectivism is uh, either redundant because it's just a restatement of a pluralism in science, or is a kind of buys into some kind of metaphysical inconsistency where the world seems to be some sort of hodgepodge of different things that um, all seems to be somehow going together and compatible about the same target system. So what I do very early on in the book um, is trying to dispel some of the premises on which the problem of inconsistent models seems to be based on. And uh, uh, two of those premises have to do with scientific models and the way we think about models, what models are for, really. Um, the first one is that we tend to think of models as representing, as mapping onto reality. I mean, this is a very well entrenched view that models perform their function by mapping onto being as a morphing to specific um, states of affairs. And the second assumption is that we tend to think of those states of affairs as some kind of um, ontological truth makers that make claims of knowledge a true or false. By attributing essential properties to the target system, um, and what I do in the book is to say well it's it's really only by giving a very, very unduly stringent reading of what models are for um, that we end up with a problem when we consider models. The idea of representing as mapping and the idea that um, there are those truth makers. Um, that make our claims of knowledge a true or false and they have to be understood in terms of ascribing essential property to the target system, is not imposed on us. It's not imposed on us unless we buy already into a kind of a strong form of realism that tend to think of uh, reality as having essential properties and tend to think of models as representing by mapping and tend to think of that representation in terms of ascribing uh, Essential properties to the target system. As soon as you bracket off all those assumptions, the problem of inconsistent model really kind of dissolves in a way. So the model takes so, so the problem takes off the ground only because it really buys into strong scientific realist of a kind of dispositional essentialist flavor uh, nature. But those assumptions are not imposed upon us. And so as soon as we resist some of those assumptions, then the space open up for developing a different ways of thinking about realism and so that's uh, that's kind of the beginning of the journey in a way for the book
2: right right so i mean yeah you it becomes very clear you know you're you're you argue against that whole kind of essentialist uh element of at least some forms of realism um so then to to kind of follow up on the ontological issue um uh in the second part of the book, um, when you sort of focus on the realism, um, and there are more questions to ask about perspectival models, but um, since you raised the issue of essentialism, um, uh, you distinguish, I mean, following, I guess, Bogan and Woodward, you know, data phenomena um and then how we use our perspectival models or perspectival inferences which again you kind of describe you know to uh to draw realist conclusions so um that's a that's a lot of things to cover in sort of one question but but let me let me just sort of summarize that to say you know on your view you know what are what are data what are you know phenomena i mean you 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 would give a very particular view in terms of what you call modally robust phenomena. And then how do we use these, you know, perspectival models um, uh, to, you know, infer from data to the modally robust phenomena and then draw our realist conclusions.
0: Sure, thanks. I think, um, yeah, this is an excellent question. And in a way, they take us right to the heart of the book, the second part, uh, where I um, spell out the different kind of realism that I see as compatible with this plurality of perspectives. Um, So as you rightly said, there's been um, obviously a long tradition, um, starting with the empiricist, that, have normally regarded phenomena as really no match for realism in science. One can't say that one is a realist about science and defend a kind of ontology centred around phenomena, because traditionally phenomena have been regarded as synonymous with appearances. But there has been a trend away from that kind of view that really started with, as you mentioned, Bogan and Woodward, the distinction between that and phenomena to which a latch. And a more recent work on data by Sabina Leonelli, but also think of uh, Ian on the idea of how we create phenomena in a lab by intervening and manipulating causal properties of objects and so forth. So there, there has been an important trend really um, over the past twenty years or so that have um, somehow created the space for rethinking phenomena in a different ways. And this is this is central to my view because the realism I defend in the book, in the second part of the book, um, is really centered around the notion of phenomena. And uh, I see phenomena as the uh, end product uh, of a long inferential chain that start with data and has epistemic communities and their situated scientific practices center stage. One thing I didn't mention before, but is absolutely key to understand uh, my redefinition of phenomena to which I'll come back in a moment, uh, is uh, a particular way in which I understand this use of a plurality of models. So um, going back to the example about the atomic nucleus I was describing earlier, my take on that and any other examples where you have a plurality of scientific models in, uh, in a play, is that 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 plurality of model is really functional to explore what's possible in nature about a particular phenomenon of interest. So the role of... um, perspectival models is very much exploratory in allowing us to deliver model knowledge, knowledge about what might be the case. And again, I go back to the metaphor about the perspective in architecture, and so I draw this analogy between perspectival models and architectural blueprint as a way of stressing uh, um, how these models, and this model pluralism in particular, is absolutely vital to understand how different communities come together to make relevant and appropriate inferences about the particular phenomena that they want to study. So, in a way, um, like in architecture, we use blueprints, because the blueprints, uh, historically before the invention of xerography, allowed different communities of architects, but also masons and carpenters and joiners to exchange information and make relevant and appropriate inferences so that they could build a structurally stable house, for example. Similarly, we use a plurality of models when we want to make relevant and appropriate inferences to Deliver knowledge about what's possible about the nucleus, for example. How is it possible that some nuclei in nature are more stable than others? This is a story I reconstruct in one of my three case studies, for example, in the first part of the book. And I give other examples from climate science to the history of developmental psychology. Um, So once Once you take seriously this idea that model pluralism and a plurality of perspective is absolutely central to deliver knowledge about what's possible, then I think a different view of phenomena becomes available where the phenomena are not just appearances, they're not faint copies, they're not shadows on the walls, but the phenomena are uh, the seats of um, the kind of modality that normally scientific realists tend to outsourced to essences or dispositions or causal powers and so forth. So the view I defend of phenomena in part two of the book um, is, is that there are stable events um, that can be identified or re-identified, so they are modally robust by a number of different communities uh, uh, in a way that is uh, entirely inferential and entirely perspectival. So, there are different aspects in this definition. So, I mentioned phenomena are stable events. So, I understand the notion of stability in a way as synonymous with low likeness. So, nature comes to us in the form of events that are stable because they are low like. Um, and the stability of those events is independent of us, is independent of scientific perspective, independent of whatever tools or models or experiments we may run. But for stable events to become phenomena, we need a plurality of epistemic communities that are able to infer them again and again from a plurality of data through perspectival data to phenomena inferences. So just to give you an example, and this is something I discussed in uh, um, chapter six of the book, um, think of the Higgs boson, right? Um, So when we say that we have discovered the Higgs boson, effectively what's going on there is that you have a stable event which is the peak 125 giga electron volt now that peak is stable and it's stable because it's low like so there are laws of nature there is a resonance mechanism that underpin the stability of that event in nature the phenomenon is what we call the decay of the higgs boson so what we are detecting is effectively the decay of that thing into a series of channels. So sometimes it's a two photon channel, some other times it's a four lepton, there are other channels. And you need different communities to be able to make those inferences from the data, the proton proton collisions of the large hadron colliders, to the stable event in question, the peak 125 electron volt, so as to conclude that there is a phenomenon, there's a decay of the Higgs boson. Um, So that's an example of a modally robust phenomenon. So uh, historically, when the particle was discovered, and by the way, we are just celebrating the 10th anniversary of the discovery just this month. Um, Yeah, it's coming up in July. Um, So what happened is that there were these two different teams of scientists, the large hadron colliders, some of the uh, CMS, some of the ATLAS. The two machines are different, so the experimental design of the machine is different. They were using the same proton-proton collisions data, but they made inferences to the same uh, stable event, which is the existence of this peak, 125 giga-electron volt. Um, and so nature comes populated with modally robust phenomena like the decay of the Higgs boson, but also the pollination of flowers uh, or uh, the echolocation in belugas, and and many other examples um, in different domains of inquiry. Um, And what you need really is a a notion of phenomena as modally robust in the sense that we don't need to outsource that modality that normally does the job for realism to essential properties, dispositions, causal powers, or more broadly what Gilbert Ryle used to call the Hidden goings on. We don't need the hidden goings on. There are no two world views, the world of things as appear and the world of things as they are. All that we have is a world of modally robust phenomena. And I think once we take that stance, really, some of the classical historicist, contingentist, skeptical objection against realism can easily be deflated or averted because, in a way, yeah, we have kind of.
1: to take your retail business to the next level today—that's Shopify.com/slash-system.
2: Um. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll raise some some skeptical, you know, sort of anti anti real. I mean, you know, I could see a, a hardcore realist sort of saying, "Okay, you can get all these, you know, you can infer to these modally robust phenomena again and again from different perspectives. You know, they sort they sort of." you know, converge on, you know, a certain amount of, uh, you know, what is possible and what is not possible. Um, and, you know, a hardcore, I think anti-realist would say, fine, you know, you all converge. Um, uh, but, you know, as we know from, you know, sort of coherentist theories of truth or, you know, anti-foundationalist and epistemology, um, you know, everybody can agree, and yet everybody could be wrong. Um, and so that's that's sort of I, I think at that point, you know, I I, I kind of wonder, you know, um, uh, I I think this is one of the questions I had was you do an amazing way of defending realism while taking on board robustly all the all the you know quite you know you know valid you know worries and concerns and, and and complications from perspectives and perspectival perspectival models and all that um but you know there seems to be a um you know I don't I, you know I guess just a bedrock part where like either we are justified in inferring you know to uh, you know to a realist commitment uh, or, uh, you know, it's like, this is just not enough for me and I'm going to remain, you know, uh, you know, constructive empiricist or, you know, some other form of anti-realist. Um, so, yeah. So do you, do you have some sort of a response to that, or is that just where, you know, at some point either all these multiple perspectives, you know, that end up in the same place regarding more modally robust phenomena. uh, Is that, you know, that's enough for realism? Um, Or, you know, is is the person who says, no, it's not, um, is there really any kind of further response to be given to them? Sure, yeah, well, that's an excellent question, right? So where does the
0: realist anchor is in all the story about empowered phenomena? So for me the answer lies in the low likeness of the events so this is the realist anchor okay um, and obviously there has to be some foundation in any realist project so mine does away with traditional ideas about essential properties and disposition and causal powers but take low likeness as a primitive notion so i believe that there are low like events in nature and i believe that that level of uh, realism is enough to deliver the kind of realism that we observe in science. As I said, the peak 125 volt is there; it's not going to go away. Um, the bending of the cathode ray is a phenomenon. But so, as I said, for the phenomena for ontology that are developed in the book, um, I see these two um, levels in a way applying playing the notion of phenomena there's the stability of the events and there's the model robustness now model robustness i take it to be a secondary quality um, so it's really an expression of how different communities come to infer again and again the same stable events from a plurality of data sets uh, but the low likeness of the of the events the fact that there are events in nature that have law-like dependencies, I take it to be a primitive. So there has to be some foundation in any realist story. So most scientific realists would be um, happy to, um, you know, delegate their role to causal powers or disposition or or whatever. Uh, But in my view, their role is placed by um, law-like dependencies. So that there is a 125 gigaelectronvolt volt peak is a stable event in nature. It doesn't depend on scientific perspective. Obviously, we need something as sophisticated as an LHC experiment to be able to uh, detect that peak, that's for sure. But that peak is part of the fabric of nature, in my view. And similarly, that um, there are electrically charged particles that are bent in the presence of a magnetic or electric field. Is also a low-like event in nature that, um, again, we need a machine, like we need cathode rays to be able to see that. Uh, but doesn't, you know, it's it's the, the, the stable event in itself is where the realist story is. Um, uh, and then the inferentialist, the perspectival aspect is at the level of the modally robust phenomena. And I, 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 I see your point, I see your objections. Like, but how do you strike a sort of middle ground here in between, uh, you know, the standard scientific realist story that will want more and will want to delegate the, the realism to causal power disposition and so forth on one end, and the historicist slash conventionalist slash contingentist that um, um, will just happily dispense with all. All of that, including my notion of phenomena, and just to go fully coherentist about all that. Well, one of the attraction of perspectivism, really, and actually one of the sources behind the view that I've developed, uh, in, uh, comes from epistemology and Hern uh, Sosa' work on uh, perspectival knowledge. And if you think of that tradition, that tradition was developed precisely to strike a middle ground in between a traditional foundationalist view and traditional coherentist view. It was a way of saying Is it possible to have actually somewhere in between uh, what you call the the pyramid and the rafts, right? Rafts of coherentism and the pyramid of foundationalism. Um, And so this idea that there are, in a way, two levels of knowledge, a level where we have reliable knowledge and a kind of perspectival ascent where we look at the justification for the reliability of the sources of knowledge, originates precisely from the attempt of answering those questions about how to go beyond the traditional, well, foundationalism and coherentism and epistemology, scientific realism slash, um, I would say, conventionalism when it comes in philosophy of science. Um, And obviously the tension is there. So um, I didn't write this book in the hope to Persuade the diehard metaphysician or the diehard, uh, you know, conventionalism to join the perspectival realist uh, um, camp. I mean, I'm I'm perfectly aware that people that have a more, um, I don't know, more robust metaphysical intuition than I ever had are not going to be moved um, by some of my arguments. But I guess I took the purpose of the whole book was really constructive, so I was not meant to give any kind of um, you know, knock down arguments against the metaphysicians or the conventionalists. I think I, I, I give a series of localized, the localized moves uh, as I go along in the book um, to explain why I don't buy into essential properties or why I don't buy into full-blown contingentism. Um, but really the main purpose of the book was to show that there is a different ways of thinking about realism. Um, and try to articulate as clearly as possible where that kind of different form of realism, um, how that form of realism could be developed. Um, so, yeah, it was a kind of a positive, um, positive purpose of the book, more than kind of proving that the, you know, that the opponents were necessarily wrong in their metaphysical intuition. And most of this, most of these claims when it comes to realism and anti-realism, you know, we have all, I think, endorsed the kind of Van Frassen uh, Um, take on stances, I think, a lot of it it comes down to stances that people have on metaphysics, on epistemology and so forth, but showing that there is a different way of thinking about realism and how that different ways of formal realism could um, be explained and teased out was really the main purpose of the book.
2: Right, and I, 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 think you you achieve that, um, <laughs> you know, in space. So let me just following up on that um, uh, for me, but and I think you know, probably more generally, um, you also elaborate within this framework um, a very interesting, again, sort of perspectival view on natural kinds, which you call natural kinds with the human face, um, and these are. You know groupings, uh, evolving groupings of phenomena. You know morally robust phenomena. Um, so can you can you explain your view of of natural kinds? Sure, I'll try. <laughs> it's it's
0: a book that extends over several chapters, from chapter seven to chapter ten of the book, uh, and it, it, it is a big chunk of the book because. Um, as I said, if the purpose was to show that it's possible to think of realism in a different way, I had to engage with the debate on natural kinds, uh, because traditionally scientific realism um, has been a realism about kinds, so those natural divisions in nature that um, scientific realists tend to associate with a list of necessary and sufficient um, properties for kind membership. Um, so very often there has been appeal to macrostructural essential properties back to Hilary Putnam, um, and if we want to know what water is. Well, we need to find out the macrostructural essential properties. Water is H two O. If we want to know what gold is, we need to look at atomic number. So it's element with atomic number seventy nine. If we want to find out what lemons are, we need to look at the genetic code and uh, identify that, and so forth. And I've been resisting all that. I think a big motivation for <laughs> perspectival realism um, has been really some kind of mistrust uh, of this talk of microstructural essential properties or essentialism in general, especially when it comes about, especially when it comes to natural kinds. So the big question for me, and probably one of the um, biggest challenges in writing the book was uh, how to go from uh, this sort of broadly Kantian view about the phenomena, as and robust phenomena, as as all that there is, to natural kinds, um, which are the sort of things that scientists talk about. As I said, we don't talk about the phenomenon of the decay of the Higgs boson. We talk about the Higgs boson, the particle Higgs boson. We want to know what those what does natural kinds are. And so the view I developed in the second part of the book is that um, natural kinds I call natural kinds with a human face, there is a kind of anti-foundational slash both bot um, sort of motivation. It's, it's a view that says uh, natural kinds are historically identified and open-ended groupings of modally robust phenomena um, where really the law-like dependency that um, are the realist underpinning of those modally robust phenomena, as I was explaining earlier, play an important role in uh, helping different epistemic communities over time to kind of join the dots among those different phenomena and uh, and allow them to do what I call truth-conducive conditional supporting inferences, which is a bit of a mouthful <laughs> for saying that we have reliable mechanisms to explain why some phenomena go together and some others don't go together. So the open-end so the, the grouping is open-ended, is fallible, is fully revisable. And that's what we want our natural kinds to be, precisely to make them impermeable to the classical skeptical objection that you know historicists have raised against realism all along. How do you know that we are I, you know, How do you know that the electron is real? In the past, we believed in things like caloric or phlogiston or ether, and we now know that they don't exist. How do we know that our best uh, uh, theories in mature science will not end up like caloric theory in 100 years down the line? I mean, all those sorts of argument um, really has a bite. As soon as we think of natural kinds as carbon natural disjoint, being identified by microstructure essential properties, Um, But once all that is removed and what you have are modally robust phenomena that historically situated communities have reliably and justifiably identified, uh, insofar as we have a way of showing why some of those phenomena uh, form groupings and others don't, we have a way of explaining why we have the natural kinds that we know and love without that level of certainty or uh, necessity that is vulnerable to the classical historicist objection, and so that's what I try to to show in the in, in in those chapters. But also, I wanted to defend some intuitions that we have about what natural kinds are really for. For example, uh, you know, again, against the macrostructural essentialists, so there was a news in two thousand nineteen that a group of scientists uh, had discovered. Uh, um, have engineered, not discovered, have engineered the Akimoji DNA, DNA that consists of eight nucleotides rather than four, um, and he made the news headlines. And I was thinking, those are important areas where really science is redefining the boundaries of how we think of natural kinds. And we want to make room for those uh, engineered kinds that prove to have uh, a very effective naturalness as much as we want to explain why in the past that we used to believe in things like caloric and phlogiston and why we now regard those as what are called empty kinds, because there is no such thing as caloric and either. And so the story I developed is that every kind is born as an in-the-making kind. And some of those in-the-making kind eventually make it and become evolving, always in an open-ended and fallible, revisable way, and others become empty kinds, when at some point scientists discovered that some of those phenomena didn't really quite get together. Think of the kind of phenomena that were associated with ether, right? I mean, it was uh, um, invoked to explain um, all sorts of things if you read the uh, queries in Newton's optics. So it was the medium of uh, electrical phenomena, magnetic phenomena, uh, obviously optics, but it was also invoked for all sorts of physiological phenomena and so forth. So, uh, the law-likeness is key right here. This is, again, the realist anchor in the story. Um, the ability to identify those law like dependencies that work in the different phenomena and, and allows different communities to make those inferences. Are those two phenomena really belonging to something that we can call the natural kinds or they don't? Um, and if they don't, then... Uh, sometimes what we thought were natural kinds proved to be empty kinds like in the case of caloric or ether um and others will go from strength to strength will become evolving kinds so that's in very broad stroke the the story i tell in uh, yeah chapter seven to ten
2: yeah no i mean there's a there's a huge amount of really interesting uh stuff there and i i think um you know i would just encourage listeners to you know to actually you know go through it and read the read these chapters to to get the the finer points um i do want to get to um the the final chapter where you, you kind of go uh where you where you uh where you show sort of where your perspective of realism uh, comes up against what we were talking about earlier about when we we're about, you know, subjective, objective, those sorts of concerns that are often associated with perspectives. Um, and you talk about, you know, the problem of epistemic injustice as it can appear in this sort of, you know, very, you know, different sort of context than it, that it usually, um, comes up in. So could you just, could you explain a bit about, um, you know, first of all, I mean, it's it's clear that different, you know, historical, cultural, epistemic communities will, you know, contribute. Um, but then the injustice appears in, um, in the ways, and you, you identify two specific forms of of injustice, where certain perspectives get get left out in a certain way. Um, can you can you explain that um, connection between perspectival realism and epistemic injustice?
0: Sure, thank you. Yeah, I'll I'll do my best. I mean, again, this is the final chapter. It's called the multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism in science. And although it's a final chapter, it, it actually has some of the a really main motivations for the book as I outlined at the beginning of the book I wanted to write a, a different a book about the different ways of thinking about realism uh, for a number of reasons, not just because I had different metaphysical intuition from the standard scientific realist but actually because I was really um, interested in uh, questions about multiculturalism in science that seems to have completely escaped the debate about realism and anti-realism so Traditionally, we tend to think about those debates as kind of happening in some sort of idealized, the frictionless plane. We never really think about scientific knowledge production as historically, culturally situated, as you know, the knowledge that pertains to a specific community, a specific time. Um, and so, one of the main motivations for writing the book is to do justice to that situatedness of our scientific knowledge. So going back to the metaphor of perspective that we started with, going back to the first notion of perspective, knowledge that is always from a specific historical cultural vantage point, this is a theme that I developed in the final chapter. And now one of the um, one of the aspects that I stress about the situatedness and the Uh, perspectival nature of our knowledge is that it it is really knowledge produced by a plurality of epistemic communities that have, as I say, methodologically intersected and historically interlaced. This is a bit of a jargon that I explain in the book, but I see the dynamics of the different scientific perspective as intersecting and interlacing absolutely essential to explain how we produce reliable scientific knowledge over time. So first of all, I wanted to stress the fact that scientific perspective extends well beyond specific geographical, socio-political boundaries. Um, and also the scientific perspective should not be understood as some kind of scientific membership or you know scientific homeland in a way, um, because if we understand it in that way, then we really risk um, unjustly cutting out uh, uh, big portions of the society or, you know, important epistemic communities that have historically contributed to scientific knowledge production. So just to give an example, which is, again, linked to the discussion about natural kinds with a human face and the example about the electron in Chapter 10, um, I think it would be a mistake to think of the um, what we tend to call the Faraday Maxwell scientific perspective as the um, exclusive um, repository of a particular community that was working in a particular historical, cultural, institutional environment at the time, without taking into account the plurality of other epistemic communities that at the same time were making possible the scientific knowledge production. So the classic example that I give in Chapter 10 is that uh, we associate, obviously, the discovery of the electron with J.J. Thompson's experiment at the Cavendish Lab in 1897 and his ability to identify the charge-to-mass ratio, what he, at the time he called the corpuscle. But we tend to forget that that tradition of experimenting with cathode rays was really made possible by the flourishing of a, a glassblowing industry um that developed in the second half of the 19th century. We know for example that J.J. Thompson had his own personally trained glassblower, uh, Ebenezer Everett, at the Cavendish Lab. So you need to you need that kind of know-how, that kind of uh, often practical and artisanal knowledge that allowed the, those discoveries to, to take place. And even before that, you need the communities of Scottish um, crofters in the Hebrides that were able to um, burn ashes of seaweed and, and produce the alkali flux necessary for the production of glasses. So going back to the issue about epistemic injustice, what I stressed in the final part of the book is that once we take seriously the situatedness of the human uh, um, uh, uh, knowledge, uh, we need to be careful in not um, cutting off portions of uh, uh, of that seamless interlacing of scientific perspectives that has been pivotal for the ability to advance reliable scientific knowledge. Um, and so part of the motivation of the book was precisely to defend um, the human point of view as a way of reinstating communities that we tend to forget about when we write narratives about, about science um, and kind of expand your eyes on and look at how those different communities have fruitfully uh, engaged with one another and interlaced with one another to make that knowledge of nature possible. And so whenever we have either an intentional um, severing of the narrative that excludes those community, uh, or worse, what we have uh, is sometimes a, a ring fencing of scientific knowledge as if it was the uh, exclusive repository of one community against others, then epistemic injustices arise. Uh, what I call epistemic severing and epistemic trademarking, and then then yeah, I I kind of hint towards the end to um, an alternative way of uh, thinking about all this so that doesn't buy into the risk of severing of epistemic injustices. So a picture about cosmopolitan. Uh, uh, science, as, as, as a picture of science where um, it, it's really uh, a, a human right that belongs to everyone in virtue of being a, a citizen of the world. So this is the very, very last section of uh, of, of the book and um, something that I want to work more in the future.
2: Uh, good. Well, um, that does actually bring us to, to the end of our, our time. So i like to end with a question about what, what you are working on in uh, you know right now as a follow up to the book, or or what sorts of projects are you turning to at this point?
0: Yeah, well, um, precisely what I was uh, mentioning just a moment ago. So um, I I finished the book and I thought, gosh, I need to write another one, uh, which I don't know whether whether or when I'll have the time to write next. But um, um, in a kind of unexpected way. Um, I ended up getting very interested in um, debates at the intersection of legal political um, theories on science as a as a human right. So there's an important debate um, in that area um, that normally philosophers of science don't really go into, um, but it's, it's a debate well known to political theorists and, uh, as I said, legal philosophers and so forth. Uh, and it's a debate that really starts with the um, UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 that looks at scientific progress as a, as, a, as a right, as a human right. And again, it continues in 1966 with the International Covenant for Economic, Social and Cultural Rights that reinstates the right to enjoy the benefits of scientific progress. So this idea of uh, uh, scientific cosmopolitanism uh, as a science to the benefits of a world citizen. It's something that became very salient while I was writing the book also, because we were in the middle of a three year pandemic and the debate about vaccine nationalism, obviously um, became a very um, timely and pressing to everyone's eyes. The fact that, um, you know, science is uh, produced in a way that still not only there are epistemic injustices, but big structural socioeconomic injustices in accessing uh, the benefits of scientific knowledge. And so this is an area where I hope to write more. So I've written a uh, paper now for a special volume on uh, scientific progress, edited by Yafeng Shan. It's coming out in December. Uh, just for the short comment in natural physics that has been published earlier this month. It um, kind of gives the broad lines of the the area so yeah good work for the future
2: (laughs) excellent excellent um well that all sounds very exciting i'm sure a lot of people will be very interested in in looking for that work um, in the future um but yeah so uh we are out of time now. <laughs> so uh, I do want to thank you again for for speaking with us at New Books and Philosophy. It's been a, a great conversation. And I wish you best of luck with the, uh, with the new work that you're doing as an outgrowth.
0: Thank you so much, Carrie, for having me. And thank you really very much for this uh, really excellent and stimulating question. Thank you.
2: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Michaela Massimi, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. We've been talking about her new book, Perspectival Realism, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.